The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Okay, we're picking back up. In fact, we're going to actually be dealing with church history for two weeks in a row. So that's good. That means, you know, we can stop whenever we need to and not feel like we have to finish everything I've got today. But uh, here's where we are. Just to remind you very, very quickly, we're in the Reformation period. And uh, this is what we've covered so far. I'll not read all of that, just to remind you. And we finished section 9. And uh, there was another unit 2 that should have been in there, and that was developments in the Reformed churches. And um, now we're in unit 3, the Puritan era in England from 1559 to 1689. One of my favorite periods of church history, I think one of the most interesting periods. So since it's been a while, it's been about a month, um, I'm going to review very quickly uh, what we covered regarding the kind of introducing this period and English history and church history. We began with the question of who are the Puritans, and then after narrowing down uh, various characteristics and generalizations, in summary we saw that the Puritans, as they're called, were serious Reformed Christians in England, who were strongly committed to the Bible, who believed in the centrality of preaching and in the necessity of personal conversion and practical piety, and who advocated for a more thorough reformation of the English church and its worship uh, to conform with the scriptures. And that was over against the partial reformation that had been established by the Elizabethan settlement. And I remind you that uh, the Elizabethan settlement was really the context out of which Puritanism arose in England. And what was the Elizabethan settlement? Well, you remember that the Reformation in England had progressed along something of a, a rocky road. First, there's Henry VIII, who broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, mainly for pragmatic reasons, because of his desire to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. Uh, but having separated the English church from the jurisdiction of the Pope, his doctrine really had not changed uh, substantially, nor that of most of the people, but it did open the door for the Reformation to be... Uh, sounds like a horror movie or something. <laughs> now the, you know, some kind of ghoul is supposed to walk in. To, to, what was that? Anybody know? Huh? Okay. All right. All right, so anyway, hopefully that won't happen again. And was, it the, was it the fire detector? Was it, it doesn't sound like that. Okay. Someone's phone? Yeah. Okay. All right, I won't ask. <laughs> okay, that's all right. <laughs> Wow, that's scary. Is that like an alarm that wakes you up in the morning? Is that what that's for? <laughs> uh, okay, so you remember that Henry was followed by Edward, which was his son from his third wife. Uh, he succeeded to the throne after Henry's death as the only male heir, but he was only nine years old. But he was raised by Protestant tutors, and the young boy was, in fact, sincerely and earnestly devoted to the Protestant faith. And so many great Protestant leaders were given influential positions under 
Edward, but Edward was a sickly young man and he only reigned for six years. He died of tuberculosis as a teenager in 1533. And next in line for the throne was his older sister Mary, who has come down to us by the name Bloody Mary. She took the throne in 1533 and she was a zealous Roman Catholic. And her reign has come down in history as one of the most persecuting reigns in the history of the Protestant church. That's why she's called Bloody Mary. And because of her persecution of Protestants and her attempt to reestablish the Roman Catholic Church in England, many Protestants fled the country when she became queen. And others remained. Those who fled the country were exposed to really solid, thoroughly reformed churches in places like Geneva and Zurich and other places. But in 1555, for those who remained, the bloodbath began, and many English Protestants were burnt at the stake all others died of maltreatment in prison. And by the time she died in November of 1558, there had developed in England a widespread hatred of Roman Catholicism. And her death brought her 25-year-old sister Elizabeth to the throne. Elizabeth was what we might call a very moderate Protestant, more politically so than anything else. But many English Protestants who had fled to Europe during the reign of Mary, they, they flocked home. When Elizabeth took the throne, and many of these were given positions of leadership in the Anglican Church, and she reigned for a long time, from November 17, 1558, to March the 4th, 1603, roughly 44 years and four months. And so it was the resulting state of affairs established under Elizabeth, as we learned last time, is what is commonly called the Elizabethan Settlement. And overall, it, it instituted a kind of partial reformation. By the act of supremacy, the monarch was recognized as the supreme governor of the church. The 1552 Book of Common Prayer was established as the Anglican form of worship, with severe penalties threatened for dissent. There was also the restoration of priestly vestments. You remember what vestments were? It was a way of referring to special garments that were worn by the medieval clergy uh, uh, or the priests in the Roman Catholic Church. In terms of uh, the ecclesiastical structure established by the Elizabethan settlement, it established what is called an apostolic episcopacy, a hierarchy of church leaders over the local churches. Now, when you think about this, this language is going to come up, Episcopal versus Presbyterian church government. Uh, Episcopal church government is where you have uh, kind of a hierarchy. You have the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's over all the churches, and then you have bishops who are over regions, And then under those bishops are lower-level clergy or ministers who may be maybe uh, pastors of a particular church and then the elders of those churches. So it's it's called Episcopal because that's taken from the Greek word for bishop, the idea that that there's a higher-level minister than just your elder or pastor. There's a bishop who has authority over a section of churches, and then over him, There's archbishops and these different... So that was really the way the Church of England was organized by Elizabeth, as opposed to a Presbyterian form of government where churches are governed by the elders of the church and those elders in a region form a presbytery and that that presbytery of elders governs the churches in that region. And then as you think of Baptist, an independent form of church government, uh, we believe that the elders of our church only have authority within our own local church. And we may have associations of churches, but we don't have presbyteries that exercise authority over our local church, okay? So that just give you kind of a quick overview of what these, these, that's kind of terminology means. So 
the Anglican Church was uh, organized as an Episcopal church, and uh, they even argued that their their bishops were men who had been had been uh, had their their position handed down directly in a kind of direct line from the apostles themselves. It was called apostolic um, succession. <clears throat> the doctrinal statement of the established Anglican Church was the 39 Articles of Religion. It was a kind of a mixed thing. It, it was Reformed rather than Lutheran when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It was mostly Calvinistic in its soteriology. If you read it, you would agree with most of what it says about salvation, the doctrine of salvation. But it's more Lutheran than Reformed in the doctrine of the church, with the church under state control. And it still retained certain relics of the old Roman Catholic worship, like priestly vestments, bowing before the elements of the Lord's Supper and other things. Well, again, it was this Elizabethan settlement that provides the context out of which Puritanism arose. It arose out of a desire to purify the church, to bring it about a more thorough reformation in its doctrine, practice, and worship. Now, last time we began a consideration of the early beginnings of the Puritan movement, some of the, the, the early drippings of it as its beginning. First, there was the proposal of 1563. That was a proposal that was put forth by some of the more Protestant-minded clergy, many of whom had spent time during Mary's reign on the continent uh, in those more thoroughly Reformed communities in Zurich and Basel and Geneva. And they put forth a proposal to extend toleration. Now, these were bishops. These were men who had jurisdiction over a region of, of churches and had ministers under them. And they put forth this, uh, this proposal to extend toleration to those ministers who had scruples about wearing clerical vestments, using the sign of the cross in baptism and kneeling at communion. And it also proposed the removal of organs from churches and to reduce the number of holy days in the religious calendar, many of which they, they would argue there was no scriptural basis for the church observing. It was a fairly moderate proposal, but it was voted down. However, it was only voted down by one vote. Next was the Vestirian controversy. At that time, some ministers wore vestments. Some didn't. Communion was received by some while kneeling, with others while standing or sitting, and so on. Well, certain bishops, who again were more sympathetic to the Reformed ideals of worship, as practice on the continent, they were reluctant to coerce the clergy under them to a strict compliance with the 1559 settlement, in other words, to give them liberty in some of these areas. Well, Queen Elizabeth was not at all happy about that. She insisted on uniform compliance across all, all the regions and churches of her realm. And that eventually led to 37 ministers who refused to conform being suspended from their pulpits and cut off from their income. So that's where we left off last time. And that brings us to where we take up in the time remaining. Everything thus far has been reviewed. And we're still under the heading right now of the early beginnings of Puritanism. We consider the proposal of 1563, the Vestiarian controversy of 1565. And now thirdly, what Needham describes as the birth of separatism. 
separatism. According to Needham, the Vestarian controversy was the occasion in which the term Puritan was first used. It was used as an abusive label for Anglican dissenters. And it was also around this time that Puritanism showed its potential for separatism. Okay, now, separatists, all right, is language used to describe those who actually separated themselves completely from the Church of England. And following Needham here, uh, he tells us that in 1567, the London Sheriff's officers, uh, this is 1567, they uncovered a group of 100 people who were holding a meeting in a place called Plumber's Hall. Now, allegedly, they were meeting there for a wedding, but in reality, they were gathered there to hear preaching and to observe the Lord's Supper. When they were arrested and questioned by the archbishop of that time, Archbishop Grindall, it became clear that this was actually a functional Christian congregation that had been meeting together for a long time. They had been meeting in secret ever since the reign of Bloody Mary, uh, but they were disillusioned with the mixed character of the Elizabethan settlement, which they saw as not being Protestant and Reformed enough, and also being disillusioned with many of the ministers in the Anglican church who had conformed to the settlement, most of which, in their judgment, were mere papists. Well, they had decided to continue meeting, even after Mary was gone, as a Protestant congregation outside the established church. Now, most of these folks in this particular situation were not committed to the principle of separatism or independency as the only right practice at any time. In other words, they didn't believe that the Bible condemned the Anglican form of church government or that it condemned the idea of a state church, but this group was willing to worship in the Church of England if it became better reformed. In their minds, their separation was a temporary withdrawal, not a principled wholesale rejection of the state-established Anglican church. So in that sense, technically, they weren't really separatists in the full idea of that concept in terms of their understanding of the doctrine of the church, but they were kind of functioning as such. Some of them were imprisoned uh, for at least a year by Archbishop Grindall. However, just a month before this, still in 1567, another congregation was discovered in London, and this was a genuine separatist congregation. It was led by a man named Richard Fritz, and these were people who had rejected the entire Anglican church as hopelessly corrupt so that true Christians had no other option than to leave it permanently. And some or all of them were sent to prison. Then in 1569, some of those who had been part of the congregation at Plumbers Hall and had been released from prison, they started meeting again. And the authorities discovered 72 of them meeting in the house of someone named James Tyne, a goldsmith. And once again, they were in prison. And then some of these former Plummer Hall folks eventually joined the separatist congregation of Richard Fritz, just mentioned a moment ago. And uh, again, unlike later uh, separatists, many of whom did not believe in using any kind of literature, uh, liturgy or anything like that, uh, these people used the Genevan liturgy, what was in Calvin's church. They used it in their worship instead of the Anglican prayer book. And there's not much more that's known about these early groups or what happened to them, but that, this was the early beginnings of what's going to become later a much more substantial 
movement in England. Now let's consider fourthly, three types of Puritans then in in the 1570s and just beyond the 1570s, really up to the beginning of the 1600s. Three types. Now these are not separatists. Again, that doesn't become a, a substantial movement until later, though there were a couple of these small examples that I just mentioned. But as we come to the 1570s, there were basically three types of Puritans that emerge. Okay, there were two types of what we might call moderate, more moderate Puritans, and then a third type that was more aggressive. Okay, first, <clears throat> in the more moderate category, there were those who still disliked many aspects of the Elizabethan policies, but who believed that it would be schismatic and sinful anarchy to actively disobey. And so they decided to conform and to focus their energies on preaching and teaching and just to try to get along. So these were some men that were in the church who weren't heretical. They weren't, you know, you know, secret Roman Catholics or anything like that. They, they had sound doctrine, but they decided they, they decided they would conform to the Anglican church. Now, after the 1570s, many of this group became less Puritan in any sense at all and became increasingly loyal to the Anglican church. Now, the second group, <clears throat> still in this more moderate category, were those who disliked not only vestments, and other elements of medieval ritual, Catholic ritual in the church. But they also believed the Anglican church needed reforming in its organization, the way it was organized. Now, some of them still favored episcopacy, okay? The, the episcopal form of government. With, but they wanted the bishops to function purely as spiritual superintendents of the churches instead of kind of quasi-political figures as they were also operating in, the, in, in this period. And then others of them in this group favored Presbyterianism. Now all of them, whether Episcopalian or Presbyterian, desired church government and structures to be made simpler and more accountable, but they also determined not to be actively disruptive, but to concentrate on preaching and teaching with this goal, hoping that by this means they could build a grassroots reformation, a popular following, so that Parliament would eventually be permeated by their influence. Then, as they hoped, lawful reform through the Parliament of the Church could occur more or less naturally and spontaneously. Now, Puritans of this type that I've just described were often supported by a significant number of leading figures in the social and political sphere of England, members of the aristocracy and gentry, uh, prosperous merchants, and some important politicians, and so on. So this was the brand of Puritanism that had the greatest level of support during the time when Elizabeth was on the throne. And There were many great preachers in this category. Some of them you may have heard of. Uh, The complete works of one of them was recently published by Reformation Heritage. A guy I'll introduce us to in a a moment. Um, But Needham draws attention to three of these men in particular. One was Richard Greenham. You may have heard of him. 
if you read a lot about the Puritans or read the Puritans a lot, he lived from 1535 to 1594. He was minister of the small country parish of Dry Dayton in Cambridgeshire. Cambridgeshire. And he was known for powerful preaching and for the ability to turn theology into, quote, pastorally oriented and practical piety. Another minister, which is something that Puritans are noted for as the, in, in, in the, the following generations, the follow these men. Another Puritan minister said that his masterpiece was in comforting wounded consciences. Another mention is Henry Smith, and he was given the nickname Silver-Tongued. Henry, he was called Henry Silver-Tongued Smith, and he lived from 1560 to 1591, Uh, Some have argued that he was the most popular preacher in Elizabethan London, if not the whole of England. He attracted large crowds uh, to hear him preach from his pulpit in St. Clement's Dane. And Needham quotes from Anthony Wood, who was a writer in the next century, in the 1600s, who wrote the history of Oxford, which is where Smith studied. And Wood said this about Smith. He was, quote, esteemed the miracle and wonder of his age for his prodigious memory, and for his fluent, eloquent, and practical way of preaching. And then the third man is perhaps the greatest of all the Puritans. I would say he is the greatest of all the Puritans from this particular time period, and it could be argued of all time in terms of the influence that he exercised. No Puritan was more influential on the next generation of Puritans that followed in this man. And his name was William Perkins. And as I mentioned, some of his complete works have been recently republished. Here's volume one, uh, Reformation Heritage Books has republished it. Wonderful reading, he's very practical, he's actually very easy to read. Uh, You know, some of the later Puritans like Owen and some of those guys can be hard, but he's more in the vein of Thomas Watson and those men even very exegetical, expositional, very easy to follow and to read. And um, this is his little book I'll talk about in a moment, The Art of Prophesying, which is one of the Puritan paperbacks. I'll say something about that in just a moment. Uh, I remember when I was uh, younger and I was reading a lot and, and reading books from the library at our seminary and trying to understand the history of the Reformed churches and Reformed theology and so forth. I kept coming across Perkins all the time. And, but you could not find any of his writings, hardly, at least being available as being published recently. And I remember calling someone from Solidea Gloria to ask him about a particular book. And um, Anyway, that's been remedied recently in that uh, these men have published his complete works. It's kind of a shame that it took that long to do it because he's so foundational and so important. Um, He received his formal education at Christ College, Cambridge. And when he first came to college, he was an unconverted man. And there's an anecdote. Now, we don't have any way of proving this is true, but it's an anecdote that's been passed down that his spiritual awakening began when he overheard a woman threatening her son with these words, hold your tongue or I will give you to drunken Perkins yonder. And that struck his conscience. Another influence in his conversion was no doubt his tutor at Cambridge, 
another great evangelical preacher, Lawrence Chatterton. Well, he was converted early in his time at Cambridge, and, and his life was radically changed. He began to preach, first of all, to condemned prisoners at the castle jail. He graduated from Cambridge with a BA, 1581, but then he remained there for a time as a fellow. Now, what is a fellow? You'll come across that. Well, a fellow is a member of the college's governing council. And so he served in that position from 1584 to 1594 when he resigned in order to get married because only single men at that time could serve as fellows. In 1585, he was appointed lecturer or preacher at the great St. Andrew's Church, which was opposite or next to the college, Christ College. And they... Uh, he, he remained in that position. He wasn't a bishop. They called him a lecturer <laughs> because his role was preaching in that particular church. He was a preacher there that preached the word. And he remained in that pit position until his death from kidney stone complications in 1602 at the age of 44. So he was relatively young when he died. And he acquired a huge reputation as a powerful preacher as well as an exceptional kind of groundbreaking theologian. He was a trailblazer when it came to both the preaching style that developed among the Puritans and also in terms of theology and also in the area of what is called casuistry. Now casuistry is the study of cases of conscience and it is the, the skill to minister to these various ills of the soul. Well, he was a pioneer in this area as well and that's going to become one of the marks of Puritan counseling and Puritan preaching. Samuel Clark gave a striking example of Perkins' pastoral care. He says a condemned prisoner was climbing the gallows looking half dead. When Perkins said to him, What, man? What is the matter with thee? Art thou afraid of death? The prisoner confessed that he was less afraid of death than of what would follow it. Sayest thou so, said Perkins, come down again, man, and thou shalt see what God's grace will do to strengthen thee. When the prisoner came down, they knelt together hand in hand, and Perkins offered, Clark says, such an effectual prayer in confession of sins as made the poor prisoner burst into a flood of tears. Convinced the prisoner was low enough, even to hell's gates, Perkins then showed him the gospel in prayer. And Clark writes that the prisoner's eyes were open to see how the black lines of all his sins were crossed and canceled with the red lines of his crucified Savior's precious blood. So graciously applying it to his wounded conscience as made him break out into new showers of tears for joy on the inward consolation which he had found. The prisoner rose from his knees, went cheerfully up the ladder, testified of salvation in Christ's blood, and bore his death with patience. That's just another anecdote from the life of Perkins. Again, Perkins was a powerful preacher. His impact was such that the young John Cotton, it's interesting to trace out how these men are connected. A lot of these great periods were converted under one another's preaching. Well, John Cotton, who's later become a great preacher in himself in, in New England, 
one of the first generation of Puritan preachers in New England in the early days. Uh, such was the impact of, of uh, Perkins preaching that when Cotton came to Cambridge, it was just right after Perkins had died, or around the time Perkins died, excuse me, just before he died, but he said that when he heard the church bell toll, announcing that Perkins had died, this is why he was still unconverted, he rejoiced that his conscience would no longer be smitten by the preacher's sermons. A decade later, when 12-year-old Thomas Goodwin came to Cambridge in 1613, he said, quote, the town was then filled with the discourse of the power of Mr. Perkins, his ministry still fresh in men's memories. Now remember, Perkins preached at St. Andrew's Church right next to Christ College, Cambridge. And therefore, his con- congregation <clears throat> was made up, it was a kind of a mixed congregation, it was made up of both scholars from the college and then just the common ordinary people who lived in that area and in that town. Well, Thomas Fuller said this about his preaching. He said his sermons were of many colors. They seemed to be all law and all gospel all cordials and all corrosives as the different necessities of people apprehended. He was able to teach many types of people being, as Fuller says, systematic, scholarly, solid, and simple at the same time. He says his church consisting of the university and town, the scholar could have no Learneder, if that's a word, could have no learneder, the townsmen no plainer sermons. More importantly, he lived his sermons. Again, quoting Fuller, as his preaching was a comment on his text, so his practice was a comment on his preaching. And Perkins' work here, entitled The Art of Prophesying. Now, he's not talking about, you know, what Charismatics, we think of prophesying. That's always that was a, the Puritans often referred to, to preaching with exhortation and practical application, as opposed to just teaching. They referred to that as prophesying. They sometimes used the word that way. So the book is entitled "The Art of Prophesying," and this became the standard Puritan textbook on preaching. If you want to know where the Puritans, a lot of the later guys that we read, where they learn how to preach, it's partly from this book. And also, of course, from listening to the men before them. But this was a hugely influential book. It's one of the sources from which this powerful, practical, applicatory preaching that the later Puritans are known for can be traced. And he advocated in his book what is called the plain style of preaching. Now, by that, it wasn't meaning dull or lifeless preaching, but a kind of preaching that avoids the fashions and the devices of human eloquence and classical rhetoric that are designed to impress people and to entertain them, which was very much what characterized a lot of the preaching in the Anglican church at that time. Well, he went against that. Perkins believed that preaching should be clear and characterized by what the Apostle Paul called an open manifestation of the truth, 2 Corinthians 4.2. The preacher is to be concerned with making the truth known and clear to his hearers and to the common man, applying it practically and spiritually to their lives and to their consciences, more than being concerned with impressing people with his education 
and his wittiness. Quoting Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this, not that the plain style was lacking in wit and in the powerful use of the imagination, but the employment of these was always aimed at the mind in order to affect the conscience and not merely to impress and delight aesthetic taste by clever oratory or a display of education and learning. And then to illustrate this, Ferguson mentions the impact uh, Perkins preaching had on another man who was later to become one of the great Puritan preachers, a man by the name of Robert Bolton. I think some of his works have been actually published. But Robert Bolton tells us how that before he was converted, on a visit to Cambridge, this proud breaker of the commandments heard Perkins preach. This is... uh, this is being told by actually by Sinclair Ferguson. He heard Perkins preach and thought he was, quote, a barren, empty fellow and a passing mean scholar. Then God took hold of him and brought him through deep and painful conviction of sin. And this same Bolton came to believe that Perkins was, quote, as learned and godly a divine as our church hath for many years enjoyed in such a young man. Ferguson explains that the form of the plain style was as follows. The preaching portion, I mean the text or the passage, was first explained in its context. The doctrine or central teaching of the passage was then expounded clearly and concisely. And then there was careful application to the hearers. And one of the things that he emphasizes in this book is that it's very helpful because he, he gives instruction on how to learn how to preach in an applicatory way. How to divide your congregation. You have the young, you have the old, you have the middle aged, you have those who are believers with a full assurance of faith. You have some who are struggling with assurance. You have others who may be awakened but have not yet believed the gospel. And then you have those who are cold hearted and dead to the things of God. And he helps you think about all these different subdivisions of people and their needs. You've got the wives who are trying to raise their kids and trying to take care of the family. You've got husbands who are trying to make a living and how to learn how to apply the truths of God's word to all of these different categories of people and to their particular needs. And this is something the Puritans excelled in and that he speaks about and gives instruction to help pastors in that area in this little book. I've always thought about the little illustration I heard someone give one time about, you know, you think about a painter, and a painter may mix, you know, here's a guy, he's a painter, and you, maybe you hire him to paint your house, and the guy's really good at mixing colors, and he mixes all these colors and produces all these different shades of color, and he's, he's really good at that, but, you know, at some point you've got to slap the paint on the wall, or it's not going to do any good. And you see, that's the concept. You know, it's not just you know, eloquently explaining the text with wonderful illustrations and making it in, you know, interesting and, and entertaining for everyone, but at some point the truth has to be applied to your hearers, to their lives, to their consciences, whether it be by way of encouragement, whether it be by way of conviction, whether it be by way of instruction. And so this is something he really emphasizes in in this book, the importance of that. But anyway, as Ferguson goes on, the form of the plain style was as follows. The preaching portion, be it text or passage, was explained in its context. 
The doctrine or central teaching of the passage was expounded clearly and concisely, and then there was careful application to the hearers. What does Scripture teach? How does this apply to us today? What are we to do in response to it? How does the Scripture teach us to do it? These became the issues handled with seriousness and vigor in the pulpit. And by the time Perkins died in 1602, he was widely acknowledged as not only a great preacher, but as Elizabethan England's most influential Reformed theologian. And his works were translated, they were frequently reprinted for the European market, and his ministry in that way had a huge impact not only in England, but upon Dutch, Swiss, German Reformed thinking as well. So there you have it, William Perkins. Go buy one of his books in the bookstore. Read him. All right, then there was a third type of Puritan during this period, okay? Let's go back here a minute. Those who disliked the policies would decide to conform. Those who disliked many of them believed the Anglican Church needed reforming. They, they sought to influence this reform by preaching, seeking to encourage more of a grassroots level uh, where the parliament would then be... Um, influenced by men who, who believed in the need to reform the church. But then you had this uh, third group, Presbyterians, who actively challenged and aggressively challenged the Anglican establishment during this period. And they believed that the Presbyterian church government was the only biblical pattern and they fought to see it established. And they advocated changes in the 39 articles because not sufficiently reformed and changes in the form of worship. And they looked to the reformed churches in Scotland and on the continent as their model. And they often, this is one of the unique things more about them at this time, they often, even at this time, were appealing, appealed directly to the parliament to take control of the church and to reform it. Now, the most scholarly champion of this group was Thomas Cartwright who lived from 1535 to 1603, and he was educated at Cambridge, and he was appointed to the, what was at that point a very prestigious post of Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity in Cambridge in 1569. He was also a celebrated university preacher. His preaching drew large crowds, and he began to use this new position as Lady Margaret Professor to engage in a searching critique of Anglican church government to advocate Presbyterian, the Presbyterian form for the Church of England as the state church. He also criticized other Anglican practices, for example, making the sign of the cross and baptism, f- fasting at Lent, bowing at the name of Jesus, and so on, all these being man-made superstitions that are nowhere commanded in Scripture. Now, Needham tells us that Cartwright's critique was given in the course of a series of lectures or sermons on the first two chapters of the book of Acts and that the lectures electrified an enthusiastic student body at Cambridge. Well, as this was happening, many of the the less Puritan-minded Protestants were alarmed by this and they saw this, especially, you know, your, your established Anglican men, some of which were, we might even question whether they truly were Protestants. And they saw this as a revolutionary assault on the established authority. So after several months of kind of frantic controversy, it all ended when Cartwright was fired. He was dismissed from his post 
by the new university vice chancellor, a man named John Whitgift. And Whitgift was to become Cartwright's arch enemy, and really an arch enemy of the Puritans in many ways. Now, it's interesting that Whitgift himself had been a Puritan opponent of vestments in the early 1560s, and he was a strong Calvinist. But he soon abandoned his Puritanism and became a firm defender of the Anglican establishment, and he got a great promotion for doing that. His loyalty was awarded 12 years later by Queen Elizabeth when she made him Archbishop of Canterbury, which effectively put him as the highest-ranking ecclesiastical person in, in the country, put him over all the, uh, the Anglican Church. And so those are the three groups that we have now here at the end of the um, 16th century. All right? You understand all that? <laughs> okay. Well, God willing, we'll come back. We, I'm teaching next week, so we'll come back to this next week and pick up where we left off. Now, we have about four minutes left. Now, this is the, this is the touchy part if we're going to finish in time when I open up for questions. I've only got four minutes, so I'm going to stop at 10 o'clock. So, yes, Paul? I don't remember talking about three or four ways that people became separatists. Well, Do you mean we, we talked about different groups? Different groups of Puritans? Yeah. Well, I thought it was different groups of separatists, semi-separatists. Well, yeah, I did talk about kind of the beginnings of separatism and these two yeah. groups, the Plumbers Hall group and then the Richard Fritz yeah. congregation. Yeah. If, if that is even the larger argument, behind the curtain here, was it about, you know, what first Peter says in other passages, obey the civil government? Was that kind of what was... Yeah, part of it, part of it, I think, you know, and uh, it, you, you do have a unique context that's sometimes hard for us to understand because there's this concept of a state church. And uh, true separatism later rejected that, that even that whole concept. Baptists were separatists, for example. But these were kind of early people who were separating themselves from meeting in the Anglican church because they believed it was corrupt. But that first group I mentioned didn't necessarily take a position it was wrong to have an Anglican church. And if it was more reformed, they were glad to be a part of it, you see. And, um, and so there, that's part of it. And then part of it, too, with these different groups, is, is the question of what's the best method for reforming the church? How aggressive should we be? It's the same thing you take a pastor maybe coming out of seminary and he goes into a Southern Baptist church somewhere or some other church and he realizes all these things need to be changed and need to be reformed. Well, then he's got to wrestle with the question, what's the wisest and best way to do it? Should I just go right at it right now like Thomas Cartwright and let's do it? And, you know, and it causes a big uproar? Maybe. You know, I've always thought, you know, some guys seem to have like the 20-year reformation plan. And you say, well, when are you going to actually deal with these problems, you know? But on the other hand, there also needs to be wisdom. So you have the Perkins group who were looking at this from through the preaching of the gospel teaching the people in England, instructing them in the truth, rather than just being from the top, it could be a grassroots kind of a, a movement that then begins to infiltrate the membership of Parliament and then results in the reformation of the church that way. 
Then you had these other guys who said, well, we'll just put up with a lot of this stuff as long as we can preach the gospel. That would be the first group. Yeah. We're out of time. Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. We're, we're trying to do better about uh, finishing on time. Okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we can have together, and Lord, studying these things and, and really learning a lot about our own roots and about where some of these things have come from. And we pray that we would learn to appreciate our great history and the heritage that we have and the battles that have been fought to maintain it. We also pray that we would learn from their mistakes, their failures, and that we would learn from the things they did well. And now we ask our Father that you would guide us, bless us as we prepare to come back together again in just a few moments to worship your great name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.